Hello and a very warm welcome to F1 Nation. I'm Natalie Pinkham and I'm delighted to be joined by Mr Tom Clarkson. How are you TC? Pinks, I'm very, very well. Still in Portugal uh, where the weather is fine and I'm still buzzing about the Grand Prix at the weekend actually. How about you? Well, I'm actually down in sunny Devon and I broke away from a little family holiday to watch the race yesterday and to be with you today. I think we were incredibly spoilt with the first two races. I didn't find this one as entertaining, maybe just because I wasn't there, but I did love watching the cars on track. I don't know about you, but it really felt like a roller coaster when you came over and the stomach went up into the the back of your throat every single time. You couldn't get used to it, could you? So true. And uh, it's like they really nailed how to get the gradient on the TV compared to when we were here in October. The, sort of the helicopter shot as you're coming out of, I think it was turn seven, and then over the hump and then down and away. It was sensational. And, and Pinks, I have to disagree. I loved the race as well. I felt, yes, it was a different kind of race to the opening two. I mean, Bahrain was all about the anticipation of waiting for the overtake. We could see Max gaining on Lewis, couldn't we? And then... Imola was just chaos because of the weather, largely. And then, of course, the red flag. And this one was a bit more of a slow burn. But let's remember, we did have overtakes for the lead. We saw all of the cars uh, running flat out for really long periods. And that was largely due to having the harder tyre here this weekend. So it was an old school Grand Prix. But I loved it. I loved it. And I thought the best man on the day won it. Here comes Hamilton on Max Verstappen. Hamilton retakes that second place. Hamilton's got DRS. He's within touching distance of his teammate. He's ahead of his teammate. Lewis Hamilton goes around the outside of Valtteri Bottas. And wow, what another good move that was from the world champion. He wins the Portuguese Grand Prix. He won those crucial wheel-to-wheel duels with both Bottas and Verstappen. And that really was a statement of intent for the year as a whole. Again, as you say, a different type of challenge for him, but one that he is just loving, isn't he? Buzzing. That was good, bro. Thanks so much, Bono. And all the guys, let's keep pushing. There's a lot of work to do. Coming up on F1 Nation, we hear from F1.com senior writer Lawrence Barreto to talk about the title fight. And we're going to be speaking to Julian Billiot, who is from Auto Hebdo, the biggest selling uh, motorsport magazine in France. And funnily enough, we're going to be talking all things French and Formula One. Do you know, I was um, I was totting up, Pinks. Tell me if I'm wrong. When did Lewis last have this kind of consistent outside threat? And I think you have to go back to 2008 and Felipe Massa because um, I think Ferrari of 17 and 18 didn't have the consistency. And then, of course, it was an intra-team rivalry with Rosberg prior to that. And then he was at McLaren when he didn't have the car underneath him. So you have to go back right to the start of his Formula One career. And I think, you know, when you've done as many races as he has and you've won 97 Grand Prix, this is the kind of uh, thing you need just just to keep you buzzing and, and interest, interested actually in a funny kind of way because otherwise when you've got a 23 race calendar it does you've got to sort of force yourself to get off the treadmill and take each event 
for everything that it is rather than just another race. I couldn't agree more. And I do think there's something really uncomfortable about two teammates going at it because you can see the team principal cringing and clinching. And actually, it's not as enjoyable as a fan, as a neutral, than watching two different teams, you know, just tactically weigh each other up and and, and take each track um, as a completely different proposition. And I think that's what I loved about this race. I, you know, now I'm now contradicting myself from earlier, but I loved the fact that it was just a very different type of challenge. And again, we're going to see the same in Barcelona. And you just cannot make a prediction mm. when you go into it yeah. as to who's going to come out on top. As you say, his 97th win, his second in three races. And a mistake at the restart, you know, an uncharacteristic mistake at the restart, and then one he made up for by being the hunter and coming from behind. But it wasn't only that wonderful battle at the front, Pinks, that I loved yesterday. I loved uh, the renaissance of Fernando Alonso. I thought he was completely superb. Uh, not so good over one lap on Saturday. And he was, you could tell a bit miffed about that. But that was as good a race as I've ever seen Fernando do. And there's a serenity to him this year. I don't know whether you found it in Imola. Oh, his... I don't know about serenity. He talks about driving with anger. No, but when you talk to him, Pinks, I mean, I know you know Fernando well. And, and, but when you talk to him, he just seems so relaxed and serene. And, and I just thought that yesterday was a brilliant race equally Lando Norris I felt more confirmation of Lando uh, being a, a top draw Formula One driver and you know Daniel Ricciardo better race but Lando still better still than, than Daniel so so many stories to come out of the Portuguese Grand Prix yeah it's interesting about Lando because he certainly seemed tense at the beginning of the year and uh, he knew that this was a really big deal for him this year, Daniel coming into the team. And he had to come out of the blocks really flying and, and prove that his third year in the team would bring him experience and the knowledge and the sort of wherewithal, if you like, to be able to cope with a multiple race winner like Daniel. And wow, hasn't he done well? His confidence is at an all-time high. There's no doubt about it. So fast. And it actually reminds me, this Lando-Daniel battle reminds me of Montoya and Raikkonen um, in 2005. Because a bit like Daniel, Daniel's been coming to McLaren for quite a long time. Zach Brown has been badgering him really since before he signed with Renault a couple of years ago. And Montoya signed with McLaren 18 months before he actually drove a race for them. And the build-up was something else all Montoya could talk about to, to people who wouldn't print it was how excited he was about McLaren and what his hopes were and then when he got there Kimi Raikkonen was he'd raised his game and and had him covered at every turn and I'm just wondering whether there's it reminds me anyway of that because Daniel's been a long time coming Lando has known that it's been a long time coming and he's been waiting and is sort of pounced I do take your point, but I don't think we should get carried away. And I think we should be a bit fairer on Daniel. This is only race three. And when you look at the problems that Carlos signs, and he's even uh, Checo, obviously he had a much better race this weekend. But uh, the fact is, they're not at one with the cars yet. It is really hard to forget all you knew about your previous car and then uh, reset the muscle memory, if you like, and become 
instinctive with this new beast that you're trying to control. So, you know, it's great and that, that Lando has started as well as he had because that gives him momentum going into the rest of the season. But I'm convinced that Daniel will come good soon. Well, TC, I'm delighted to introduce our first guest onto the show. It's F1.com's senior writer, Lawrence Pareto, coming to us from an airport in Portugal. Lawrence, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Natalie. How are you doing? I'm in an airport. It's a bit random here. Um, hopefully there won't be any announcements and I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Don't want you to miss your flight, Loz. No, I do not want to get stuck in Portugal, TC. I'm thanks for caring about me. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, Lawrence, what did you make of the race? Because I felt that after the excitement of the first two, that it wasn't as gripping. TC loved it because he said it was just a very different type of race than the previous two. How did it rate for you? I think I'm going to slot down the middle. I think that we've been treated two such great Grand Prix in Bahrain and Imola that I think our expectation level for what a good Grand Prix is has like gone sky high and I think that if you took this race in isolation and you took those great moves that Lewis had on Valtteri and on Max we'd be singing about how great it was but I think we've just got used to to some really great racing and, and I think we're going to be treated to a lot this year and I suppose that for we're just expecting a, a little bit more I appreciate that it kind of fizzled out a little bit and it became quite clear that Lewis was going to was going to win that race quite early on but I think that there was always that that option that Max might might come back and because he's shown and Red Bull have shown that they are more than um more than competitive to fight Mercedes but Loz just when it might have been fizzling out we then had the excitement of of who's going to get fastest lap both Valtteri and Max coming in and I felt that gave the last few laps uh, a little bit of something as well. I, so I'm going to stick to my guns and say I thought it was a tremendous old school Grand Prix where we saw all of the top drivers going hard at it for, for the whole Grand Prix. So I do, I do like the aspect of the fastest lap is introduced where you do get that excitement towards the end. But I think I'm a bit more of the purist and I want a race to be exciting because of the battle for the lead. And as exciting it is for someone to go and get a point, and we're trying to see if Mercedes have played it right, if Red Bull have played it right. I think ultimately it didn't actually really have a, a great deal of impact on, on, on the race as a whole. Um, and it was disappointing. So I didn't realise that Max had had the fastest lap taken away from him because mm-hmm. I was in the TV pen and I was just getting driver after driver after driver. So I said to him, oh, you must be pretty happy with the fastest lap. And he was like... Yeah, fast lap, but then it got taken away again. So oh. I think <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> yeah, these stupid track limits. What was interesting was he was quite relaxed about that. He, he wasn't that bothered about losing one point in a year where I think he ordinarily would have done. I'm not sure. I think it annoyed him because he got a little dig in. He said, oh, there we go, track limit consistency again because they weren't punishing that at turn 14 previously. I think it bugged him more than you think. And in a year where every single point is going to count, I think it really does matter. And guys, let's not forget that had he won the Bahrain Grand Prix, i.e. not gone, not exceeded the track limits there, um, had he got the fastest lap yesterday, he would be leading the world championship by a country mile. And it's those fine margins that are going to decide this world championship. And I think I, I worry that the gap is currently eight points. And if Hamilton just ekes out a bit more of a gap, Max might start trying to force it. And then we might see him making a few more errors. And so I, I, I just want, he just needs to stop making 
these tiny, tiny little errors if he's going to beat Lewis Hamilton. I think to be fair to Max, most years he's going. He's picked five events that he thinks he can win, and he's knuckling down and wanting to win those. He's got to change his mindset completely this year and try and and race for the championship. And sometimes that means he's going to have to settle for second. And I think that that's what's changed with him this year. He's kind of accepting it. I do agree, Tom, that if Lewis gets runs away with it, um, as he has done many years, then that is going to crack Max's confidence. But I do think that his maturity and that mindset change will kind of maybe push that further down the year before he starts like overdriving the car. Really good point. Um, I tell you evidence that Red Bull are setting themselves very high standards and have taken that big step forward uh, was given when when Verstappen said, look, the track just didn't suit us at all. You know, we lacked pace and grip. And yet he should have put it on pole. He should have been on pole and he could have won the race. So really, it goes to show how fine these margins are and the standards that they're setting themselves now. And it's proof for all the fans out there that that Red Bull really are in the mix this time. And, you know, when we look ahead to Barcelona, which we'll do, I know, later in the podcast, but that really is a track that suits Max. He's got some great memories of that place. And the Red Bull goes very well there. So, you know, I don't know, it just keeps us all on the edge of our seats, doesn't it? I think that's one of the concerns for Max and, and Red Bull is that they, they've got to take every single opportunity that they get um, because they're, they're as much as Toto wants to say they're chasing, Mercedes are chasing, ultimately it's Red Bull and Red Bull need to take every opportunity that they get. And Mercedes are so well versed in making the best of a bad situation that when things don't go well for them, and for example in Imola when you know they, it didn't look like they were going to win that race, um, they, they managed to turn things around. So I think that Red Bull... I don't know. It's it's hard because they haven't got that championship fighting experience, that recent championship fighting experience to deliver when it matters consistently. Now, guys, do we think the number two drivers at Mercedes and Red Bull are exactly that? Are they already the number twos? Because what is it? Bottas is 37 points behind Hamilton already after three races and Perez is even further behind. So can we expect to see them? If, for example, in Barcelona, Bottas is leading Hamilton, are we going to see them flip places already? No, I think they're going to leave it a little bit longer before they start um, inflicting team orders, mainly because you don't want to get a down Valtteri. Because when you get a down Valtteri, he won't be getting third or fourth. He'll be getting seventh, eighth and ninth. And they definitely can't afford that with a Checo, who now is proven that he can get that top four slot. That's a, He did what his job yesterday, essentially, didn't he? He got what Red Bull employed him to do. I think Checo is a clear in number two, but I think he's probably gone there um, accepting that. I felt quite sorry for Valtteri Bottas. He obviously put it on pole, had that exhaust sensor failure that cost him power at the end uh you know could and should he have done more yes but he was uh, sort of hamstrung to that extent Perez uh got stopped behind Lando which ultimately compromised his race didn't he he thought Lando was going to give the place back because he of exceeding track limits never presume gentlemen never presume <laughs> Um, but yes, you have to say that Checo's made great progress, although he was very quick to say, look, I'm still not at one with the car. I sense that kind of furrowed brow of his. He seems quite, you know, like struggling to come to terms with it. But when he does, if he's getting P4 not at one with the car, can you imagine how good he'll be, you know, in the next few races? 
And remember that brilliant drive he put in in Bahrain at the first race. And I think he came into the season going, right, I am not going to get wound up by Max Verstappen's pace. I'm just going to do my own thing. And I think that was still evident in Bahrain. Whereas since then, he spent plenty of time looking at Max's data and that the competitor in him is getting a little bit frustrated by it now. And, and that's... And I think it's a little bit evident. So I really hope he takes a step back because he's a brilliant racing driver. And he's proved time and again that he doesn't need to, to out-qualify Max to beat Max in a race. And, um, you know, yesterday to get, what was it, 54 laps out of those medium tyres, sensational. That was Perez at his absolute best. And just imagine if there had been a, a safety car late in the race. Perez would have won that Grand Prix. It would have been, you know... Race three, fantastic. Checo's obviously seen what's gone before him. He's seen Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly and how those fortunes have gone. And I think inside he'll know that he's already doing significantly better than they were doing And in terms of how he feels in the car, how he feels the team are treating him. I think you're right, he has been incredibly hard on himself, but I think that's because he genuinely thinks that he can get that car to work in a way that those guys before him couldn't. Mm. Um, and I think there were races like Imola where he was at a loss to explain why he was just so bad. You could see how much he was hurting himself and he could have won the race you're right so I think that right now his head is, hasn't dropped and he knows that he's actually got Max not too far ahead if he can if he can kind of get things together Okay, let's talk about Ferrari because they didn't quite live up to their own higher expectations. You know, when you consider the progress they've made from last year, that's really encouraging. Um, but strong quality on Saturday. And then, you know, a solid performance from Leclerc, although he was typically hard on himself after the race. But Sainz just had a really bad second stint, didn't he? And was just getting overtaken um, for fun at the end there. I mean, his tyre performance just dropping off in the closing stages. How do you feel, Lawrence, about where Ferrari are in the pecking order now? The fact that they were disappointed with what happened in Portugal shows that they feel that they should be P3 overall. I think that both Carlos and Charles think they should be around that fifth, sixth mark, pushing for a P3, P4 when the situation opens up. Carlos was very diplomatic in the pen yesterday when I asked him about, you know, well, why didn't you go to the hard rather than the medium when you knew that the pace in the medium, you weren't getting it out of it. And he was just like, well, we made a decision. I think that they need to sharpen up their strategy. I think we've said that for how many years with Ferrari? I think they really do need to kind of knuckle that down because at the moment they've got two drivers operating in a very high level. Carlos, of all the people who have changed teams um, or, yeah, have changed teams, is adapting the best. He's settled in, got his feet under the table much, much quicker than the likes of Fernando than of Sebastian. Um, and I think they kind of need to make the most of that early doors before things start to change and maybe they turn their attention to next year. And did he give you any understanding as to why Ferrari struggled with graining on the mediums in a way that perhaps the other teams didn't? No, I think that honestly, I think they were at a loss. Both Charles and um, Carlos were at a loss to explain why they were struggling on that rubber. It's slightly more encouraging that it wasn't just in the race. It was kind of across the weekend that they were struggling. So at least it wasn't an anomaly in the race. Um, and they're just going to have to look at that going forward. It could be all sorts of things, just like the track surface, um, in a way that they just couldn't they couldn't get the tyre into the right window. And they have, let's forget, not forget, they've struggled with that over the years as well, getting it into the window. Sebastian used to bang on about that all the time, couldn't get the tyres into the window. So I think these are just things that have been in the Ferrari's DNA for a while. And now because they're performing at a higher level, we're just seeing that a little bit more. It's, it's just a little bit more obvious. And while it was a frustrating race for Carlos, I think he will still actually be looking at the positives going into his home Grand Prix next weekend because... To qualify fifth and out-qualify Charles Leclerc, 
was a great job by him. And I think, you know, a, a racing driver is ultimately measured on his speed. And and for Carlos to out-qualify the quali meister in Charles Leclerc was, was a big moment for him. So there are certainly positives for him to take away from Portugal, even if the race didn't pan out. Yeah, I think Carlos, honestly, was thinking a podium was on the cards on Sunday. And I think the very fact that he's got that in his mentality at the moment shows how settled he is. He's obviously moved to Italy, spent tons of time with the team. He's integrated so well with them. And that is showing in the way that he works with his engineers at track and the ability to, to get involved with the car, get the setup right early doors, kind of across the weekend, building that rhythm. And you're right, the final result wasn't exactly what he'd wanted it to be. But I think that you're, in terms of where he is relative to Charles, I think he's much closer than he thought he would have been at race three of the season. Well, let's talk about a, a Ferrari past driver in uh, Kimi Raikkonen. A mistake made by him at the beginning. And someone's made contact and there is Kimi Raikkonen. And was there contact or did that front wing just break under the loads that it was being subjected to? It was on his teammate, actually. Every team principal's worst nightmare when the... Two cars come together. And actually, you'd have to say, you know, thankfully, Giovinazzi didn't sustain damage and was able to carry on and actually have a pretty strong race. But, um, yeah, Kimi described being caught in um, Gio's slipstream and then obviously lost his front wing, got stuck under the car, couldn't steer and ended up in the gravel. But actually, overall, what do you think about Alfa Romeo's progress? Because they showed good pace, and Kimi certainly made a good start, didn't he? Exactly. That's what I said to him. He'd made two places up, and he was actually going really well, because that car, I think, of all the cars on the grid, has been the most um, improved from one year to the next. So I think they're actually frustrated that they're not getting more out of their car at the moment. I'm quite impressed at how Kimi is delivering this year. Um, I know that isn't a great example of him delivering, but I think that he was very open and honest he said to me that he was looking at switches on the straight and so he looked down was looking at switches by the time he'd looked back up again uh, Antonio Giovinazzi was there and I was just like well and he just came out and said well that was my mistake I guess you can't really hide that can you Um, but fair play to him for admitting the problem of being a 41 year old Formula One driver is that everyone is waiting for the moment when you're over your peak aren't they I think, and it's it's a really unfair judgment because why can't he do it at forty one? Why can't he do it at forty five? But I think I mean you, Tom, right? Well, me as a racing driver, get out of the park at <laughs> sort of fifty eight. <laughs> and I just think the naysayers, the anti Kimmy people, if there are any within the team, but certainly in the paddock, will be saying, "Oh, he's forty one. That's a an unforgivable mistake." And so Kimmy needs a big weekend um, in Spain. Just to clear his name, I feel. Tell you what, this is a wonderful drive so far from Daniel Ricciardo. Ricciardo's going to go around the outside, isn't he? With DRS assistance into turn one and into the points as well. Should we talk about Daniel for a second? Because... Obviously, that was a great recovery drive to get points from P16. Getting back into the points was was a success for him because he just clearly isn't comfortable with the car. You can see the angst in his face when he talks about trying to, like the hamsters are going around in his head thinking, you know, I can't understand why things are going wrong. He's trying everything. He's trying to use all the experience he's got from the teams beforehand to try and find a solution. And for whatever reason, things aren't working out. I remember when they came out with a video really early doors of him having a seat fit and he got in the car and there were so many things wrong with, you know, what he likes and what he doesn't like. And I wonder whether that's just a real small insight 
into the wider problems that Daniel's suffering at the moment because if he didn't feel comfortable at home in the car, so to speak, in, in the cockpit, what other things is he not going to be talking about that's going to have a much, much bigger impact on his performance? thing is, Lawrence, I thought pre-season testing for him, and he said as much, went really smoothly. He, I thought he had a good weekend uh, in Bahrain, out-qualified Lando, Lando Norris uh, on Saturday. And it's almost as if since we've gone to the slippier track surfaces, Imola and Im- Imola and, and Portimao, uh, that he's struggled. So I wonder if we go back to a, an old school, old track surface in Barcelona next weekend, a track that he knows very well. And in fact, Lawrence, I'd love to know what you think. But when you asked him yesterday about going back to Spain, I felt his eyes lit up i think he's confident he wants to get there yeah agreed like he said um he's been to that place so many times he knows it like the back of his hand and you're right that there probably will be like that comfort blanket that he'll have that he's got that base layer hopefully that he can go in and hit the ground running from the beginning um i think daniel's one of daniel's problems and he's been quite open about this is he struggled to carry the momentum from friday to saturday to sunday throughout the years, particularly from Friday to Saturday. They do tons of homework to try and work out what's going wrong. And often they're going in a direction and it doesn't quite work on Saturday. And I think he's finding that those problems, since he's moved to McLaren, have got kind of a bigger or, or becoming much clearer. So I think what he needs, like you said, Tom, is a couple of races where he feels comfortable. Spain, Monaco, two races where I know that he'll feel much more comfortable with with the venue. Um, and um, But if, you know what? he's going to be feeling the pressure from Lando because Lando's doing exactly what he needs to do to assert himself at the team. Now, Lawrence, I don't want you to miss your flight. It's been great to have your company. Thank you for your time and safe travels. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been lovely to chat to you guys and I'm super excited about Spain because I think Portugal's just left a really good taste in all of our mouths. Now, Pinks, it's time to talk all things French, because we have our French correspondent on the line, Julien Billiot from Autohebdo, which is the uh, largest selling motorsport magazine in France. Julien, are you there? I am here, next to Portimao. I'm interested to know, um, there's obviously been a, a significant step forward for Alpine this weekend. How much interest is there in the team in France? I mean, Renault has been in Formula 1 for nearly 45 years, so there is definitely an emotional connection between the brand and, and French Formula 1 fans, you know, from the days of Jean-Pierre Jaboud and Alain Prost, René Arnoux, and in, uh, you know, in more recent times, of course, Fernando Alonso winning in, in 05 and 06. So there is an emotional bond between French Formula 1 fans and Renault. And I think the, the, the rebranding is Alpine, with Alpine is, is quite an exciting uh, project because the, the brand, even in France, remains fairly niche. And it was associated more with, with rallying in the 70s and endurance racing. Um, but I think it will, it will allow to, to project the brand uh, on a bigger platform. But de- definitely in France, there is a, an emotional bond, even though sometimes we like to make fun of it, of course. Do you make fun of Alpine? All the time, of course. Of course. I say, you know, let's be honest, you guys have been spoiled with winning in Formula One over the past, God, you know, how many decades? And, and it has not been fantastic on that front for, for France ever since, I guess, Alain Prost retired at the end of 93. I think we had like three wins. Alesi in Canada, 95, Panis, Monaco, 96, and, and Pierre in Italy last year. So, you know, rather to be 
sorry for ourselves. We'd rather make fun of ourselves, I guess. It's so interesting you should say that because I don't know if you read, I'm sure you did, Pierre's um, column about growing up with Antoine and how people would say, almost mock them, say, well, decent Formula One drivers don't come out of France. And yet he said that just made him all the more determined to really make it. And when I think back to his win in Italy last year and the emotion that he showed and the, the commitment and sacrifice that his family's had to make to get him to that place, I mean, that must make you incredibly proud. I felt proud. I'm not even French. I, I was really, I mean, I was, first of all, super lucky to be in Monza because we have a rotational calendar with my, my teammate Jean-Michel, whom I, I say hello to. And I was actually lucky to be in Monza at that time. And I was like super emotional. I really struggled to actually write down the report and everything because it was such a momentous thing for France. And we were not prepared for that. This is why I told Pierre, we were not prepared for that. Because, you know, we, we had accepted the idea of not winning in Formula One anymore. So that's why I mentioned making fun of ourselves because it was such a far-fetched dream. And then it finally happened. It just hit me and I felt so much responsibility to write the report because I guess this issue of Otto Hebdo will be kind of historic or a classic in, in, you know, in some years' time. So I felt a big responsibility, but a big pride as well. And has the French public embraced Pierre since then? I think they embraced him even before that. Same with Esteban, to be fair, same generation. They come from the same area in France. I know they're not the best friends in the world for various you know, reasons. Uh, but, but people are excited, you know, were already excited uh, about Pierre and Esteban before this, uh, this win. And of course, the, the victory just made everything bigger. Were you a little bit nervous when Ocon was coming up to overtake Gasly? Could this end in tears? I, I was certainly holding my breath. I'm always holding my breath a little bit when these two are on track because, you know, you know I know it, it, it can only take a silly incident or, or clumsy colliding for, for the whole thing to erupt. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always... But it, it makes things more interesting as well. Let's 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 be honest. To be, it's more interesting to write. Now, Julian, this this race by Alpine yesterday, um, sensational performance. Ocon all weekend, Alonso in the race itself. Um, do you think we're going to see a repeat of this, or do you think it's track specific? Have they made a breakthrough? As a proud Frenchman, I'd like to think they they can you know replicate it in, in Barcelona. Now, uh, if I'm being realistic, I would be surprised if they managed to to find that kind of you know that turn of pace in Barcelona because the track is very different, the asphalt is much grippier, and and just the the type of corners you have in Barcelona. Okay, the the last sector is very narrow and slow, but the first two you have you know high and medium speeds the corners, and and I'm and I'm not sure the the Alpine is is doing very well in, the, in that kind of corner. So so I'd be surprised, but they've definitely made a breakthrough over the past two weekends, having brought uh, updates at Imla and Portima, which, which seemed to work quite well. And I think, I was telling Pinks this earlier, that there's a serenity to Fernando Alonso at the minute, a sereneness. He seems uh, very relaxed, very happy with where he's at. Pink slightly disagreed. She thinks the fire is burning as strong as ever. What do you think? I totally agree with Natalie. Because, I mean, Serenity and Fernando Alonso don't really go together in my, in my book. I mean, you know, I, I won't pretend I know the guy closely, but I could, I could, I could see he was miffed when Ocon out-qualified him, not only in Imola, but more like on Saturday evening. He was, 
he was a bit miffed and he said, yeah, there is something wrong with the car because I was up there and through practice. And, but, you know, I'm in the best spot avail- available to start the race because I have a free tired show. So he was already, I, I won't say he's playing mind games already, but you can see that, you know, he maybe was not expecting such a strong challenge from Esteban. And yeah. people in general, and, and, and I'm going to include myself, I'm going to be totally transparent. I was expecting Fernando to be, you know, I was afraid for Esteban that he might end up with like, like, what Stoffel van Dorn endured at, at McLaren a few years back. Let's move it back to Gasly for a moment. He talked about having a very difficult weekend and the fact that he was able to salvage a point was therefore very positive. Um, I think that sort of says quite a lot about his maturity and how he's grown as a driver. Um, how much promise do you think that both he and the team have at this stage? Because certainly at the beginning of the season, we were really excited about Alpha Tauri's prospects and they haven't quite been able to perhaps capitalise on, on some of the progress they've made. They definitely missed out on a lot of big points, I think, at the start of the season because, I mean, Pierre was on was fifth on the grid in Bahrain and, and Imola, so you, you would expect strong results uh, and but then you know in the, there was a contact with uh, Dan Ricardo at the start of the race in in Sakir and then the the questionable tire strategy in Imola which you know I still struggled to get my head around and so 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 they lost out and, and Pierre was very very well aware he, he told us um in Portimao that you know he, he wanted okay qualifying is great great performance but we need to have clean races and that weekend I mean Portimao he had a clean race, but but the car was not there, and he was complaining of a lack of mechanical grip in, in slow corners, and and he was a bit miffed, you know, at at when I told him, did you expect Alpine to be so strong because they had been struggling? And he said, yeah, but they they are fast in slow corners, in a kind of, <laughs> and 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 you know, so when we come back to to tracks with uh, high speed corners, we, we should be ahead of them. But you could feel in his voice that he was was a bit disappointed with that. Certainly Yuki Tsunoda TC complained about having a really tough day, no grip, no pay, struggle with balance throughout the whole weekend. It's really been a baptism of fire for him, hasn't it? I mean, as as for most of the rookies, but, you know, such a steep learning curve. Um, Julian, I should preface this with Natalie is the biggest Yuki Tsunoda fan probably in the world. (laughs) And so every single show we managed, we have a Yuki Tsunoda segment, um, I think you're right, Pinks, but I think also after his difficulties in Imola and the mistake in qualifying and things, I think he was always going to throttle back a bit this weekend. And what was he? He qualified 14th, whereas Pierre qualified 9th. So I think that was inevitable. And hey, it's all part of the learning, isn't it? And I think when you're on a slippery track surface like the one in Portimao, you know, Max Verstappen saying he doesn't, didn't enjoy driving there at all. Imagine if it's only your third Grand Prix and you're still just trying to work out what's what. It must have been very, very hard for Yuki. And and he uh, did a solid job. I think you can say he did a solid job, but uh, he'll be much more comfortable on a grippier surface next weekend in Spain. Um, and Julian, are you a member of the Yuki Sonoda fan club of which... Natalie is uh, president and chairman and CEO. I think we all are part of the, you know, Yuki Tsunoda fan club. I'm still waiting for my badge, maybe because I, I didn't pay, I haven't paid the fees yet, so that's why. Uh, but no, no, it's tremendously exciting. And, and I was a bit worried for Pierre at the start of the season. I was like, you, you, you don't want to sleep on that guy because he's quick and he, he could, you know, okay, you're coming off a great season, winning your first Grand Prix for France in 24 years. But don't sleep, don't sleep on Yuki because the guy is fast. I, I thought he was the best 
the best Formula Two driver last year. You know, no offense to to Mick and Nikita, but in terms when it comes to raw speed and car control, is you know mm-hmm. super impressive. And I'm sure when he puts everything together over the whole weekend, uh, he almost did it in in, in Bahrain. But I'm sure we're going to see uh, tremendous things from Yuki. Now, you mentioned Mick, Mick Schumacher. He beat a Williams. Mick Schumacher slips through and up into seventh place. Yes, yes. Uh, you said seventh. I think you, um, well, I know you meant 17th. 17th. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> if you're driving a Haas in 2021, that is as good as it's going to get. Sensational. It's almost like a win. I mean, they, they, it was funny because in the media centre, when Mick overtook uh, Nicholas Latifi, there was a big cheer coming from my German colleagues and they were like super excited with it. So, you know, you know, part of the fun because of course they were fighting for P18 or P17 at the time. But still, it shows that, you know, this is, you know, no small achievement, especially if you look at the gap with Nikita. I know, I know Nikita had an extra stop, uh, but still the, the gap is quite, quite significant. So, so definitely a strong, strong start to, to his F1 career for me. Yeah, it was more, more than a minute ahead of Nikita, wasn't he? Uh, just very quickly, Julian, how, how did you read what happened at the front yesterday? Did the best driver win on the day? Did Max Verstappen give it away? What, what were your thoughts? Well, I think the best driver won it, for sure. And, and this is fascinating because Lewis, we, we, we almost take it for granted that the guy is super skilled and we tend to forget and we say, oh, the car is fantastic, he's never challenged. But every time he's, you know, he's pushed a bit, he manages to find another gear mm. and, and, you know, race to another level. So for me, this was all loose. I know, I know Max had a couple of, of mistakes throughout the weekend, but even without those, I'm not sure. I'm sure Lewis would have been right up there and challenging for the win. Julian, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us today. Merci beaucoup and uh, bon chance and au revoir and à bientôt. <laughs> Okay, you, you can write for her to help do next time, and I, you know. Oh, Natalie, it's so nice to be speaking to a Frenchman in English. Because I, I, I sort of, I think back to 1998 when I was sent by a magazine to go and interview Olivier Panis at uh, Magni Corps. And I remember chatting to the PR lady at Prost Grand Prix in French. And Olivier heard me chatting in French and he said your French is better than my English so can we do the whole interview in French now I'd actually forgotten most of the French that I'd studied at school so I did uh, the whole interview in French and all I can tell you now is there weren't many quotes (laughs) (laughs) well TC I think we've got through a fair amount today and even without Damon's help I do miss him when's he back oh we all miss the champ don't we he's back next week it's going to be the three of us dissecting the Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, He's probably on the golf course now. In fact, have you been on the golf course, Pinks? I have. And you know what? Tomorrow I've got a golf lesson with none other than Bernard Gallagher, three-time Ryder Cup captain, and his daughter, Kirsty, who's one of my best friends. She said, oh yeah, Dad, I'll give you a lesson. I'm like, oh my God, the pressure. Crikey. Aim high, Pinks. (laughs) That's fantastic. Clock is ticking. I need all the help I can get. Um, And how's it going? How's your timing? Don't they talk about timing? Just, it's just not great. I'll, I'll be honest. It's just a very frustrating game. Which well, she did warn me, but I didn't take any notice, did I? No, no. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. I'll need it. How do you feel about Spain and how do you think the teams will fare there? Well, I'm going to be very sorry to leave my hotel in Portugal. First up, Algarve is 
beautiful. But anyway, it's going to be great, isn't it? I mean, it's madly busy. Monday and Tuesday between back-to-back races, the freight's moving uh, of course, and personnel are moving. A lot of, interestingly, a lot of the engineers have all flown back to the UK uh, to debrief with the factories. Uh, obviously, only the UK teams, but uh, so a lot of engineers going back to base, but most people just going straight from one to the other. So, how is it going to play out in Barcelona? We know that this season is very track specific. You spoke to Andrew Shovlin, trackside engineering director for Mercedes, to find out whether he had any concerns for the team heading to Circuit de Catalunya? We've got plenty on, on our list of things to worry about. It's, uh, you know, it can be pretty hot there. It, it's a tarmac that's now getting quite aggressive and gives the tyres a tough time. Um, and we've just done two circuits that have been pretty cold. Um, and it's, you know, it's been fairly hard to, to get the tyres in the right window. Barcelona's a little bit more like Bahrain in the way that it, it you're always sort of overheating. Um, and Bahrain was not a very kind place to us in uh, in some respects. Well, TC, that's a really interesting point because Bahrain didn't work so well for them. And then they feel like they kind of got the momentum, their mojo back. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see if Red Bull can capitalise on that. Oh, I mean, it's mouthwatering, isn't it? When you think uh, what happened in Bahrain and, and, and on the evidence of what Andrew's just said, what Andrew's just said... Um, it's advantage Red Bull going in. And also the fast corner. I think we've established already that the Red Bull is better through fast corners. The Mercedes perhaps a little bit better through slower stuff. So uh, given the characteristics of Barcelona, it's looking, I would imagine the Red Bull will be very strong through sectors one and two. The Mercedes very strong through sector three with the chicane. It's going to be fascinating. It's all going to be about tyre wear. Look how brilliant Lewis was with tyre wear in Portimao. Max might have the fastest car pinks, but he's going to have to nail it every lap of the whole weekend if he's going to beat Lewis Hamilton. And you know what? If there's ever a place that he can do that, it is in Barcelona. Vamos! Vamos indeed. Well, let's hope it's a good one. I think that's it, isn't it, Pinks? I think it is. F1 Nation is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. We'll see you next week when Damon will be back and the three of us will discuss all things Spanish Grand Prix. See you. Vamos. Is that what we're meant to say? Vamos, vamos, vamos. Adios, hasta luego. Oh, Pinks. <laughs> Hang on. I've got room service now. H- hello? Uh, can I just have half, half an hour, please? Thank you.